Father, it is because Christ lives that we can gather and worship and sing with His presence here among us and in us by Your Spirit. So many years after the death and resurrection of Christ, it's because He continues to live not just spiritually in us, but He lives physically before Your throne where He intercedes for us on our behalf, offering up prayers where He calls us to Himself and, Lord, where He will come from when He returns. And so, Lord, we worship You, we praise You because Christ lives. We pray today that we will recognize this truth and not take it for granted by responding to the reading and singing and study of Your Holy Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's always great to be with you on this Resurrection Sunday. You know, it must be said that the whole reason we worship on Sunday is because of the resurrection. In essence, we celebrate the resurrection every single Sunday. But of course, today is the official day in which we commemorate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it just so happens that in our study of Matthew chapter 22, we've come to the passage where the Sadducees challenged Jesus about the logic and reality and the truth of the resurrection. So last week, if you were here, I wanted to zero in on the constant threat of the Sadducees. I called it the leaven of liberalism. It's this perpetual threat to Christians to doubt, to disbelieve. It's a threat to Christians, to the church. It's a temptation really in every generation. It comes in many different forms to reject things that the world might find impossible to believe. Things like creation, the virgin birth, and the resurrection. And that's precisely what the Sadducees were challenging. They were challenging Jesus and His belief about resurrection. They wanted to find and really create a religion with the bare minimum. Really, it ended up just being a, a religion of simple social acts. They found it ridiculous to believe that anyone could be resurrected have an afterlife, not the least of which would be Jesus Christ. But in fact, Jesus was raised from the dead, and He fills our hearts with hope. What hope? It's hope that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was indeed accepted by the Father. It's a hope built on the belief that Jesus does indeed have power over sin and death. It's a belief that our Savior lives eternally, and as I prayed, He intercedes for us before the Father, a living Savior. And it's a hope built on the belief that all who trust in Him will also one day, just like Jesus, be raised up and granted a new eternal glorified body wherewith we can worship God perfectly for all eternity. So the resurrection is the hallmark of Scripture. You take away the resurrection, not only does our whole belief narrative collapse, but worse than that, we are left with no hope at all. And that's exactly, exactly what the Sadducees wanted to do that's exactly what any kind of liberal system wants to do is strip the truth, strip the miraculous, strip what they can't understand away from Christianity and Christians in the church. Paul said, take away the resurrection and we should be most pitied. 
Paul said, what I deliver to you, the gospel message, which is how you are saved, that message is according to the scriptures, Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf, was killed for us, buried, and that he was raised and appeared to more than 500 people. Now, my purpose this morning is not polemical. I'm not wanting, wanting to debate or give some sort of evidentiary apologetic this morning. But friend, if you're here today and you have not believed the truth of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, I would call you today to believe in Christ. Friend, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You'll be filled with meaning, with purpose, with hope of a future with Him forever. If you don't, the best you can do is live like the Sadducees did and just sort of live your life justifying to yourself why you don't believe. That's exactly what these people did. They rejected Jesus, they rejected His preaching, and they sat around coming up with reasons why they rejected Him. And with that sense of pride, they came to Jesus one day, just a few days, in fact, before his death and then resurrection, and they challenged him with this in effort to make a fool of him. Well, that's what we're looking at last week and this week. This is in Matthew 22. Let me read to you beginning in 23. I'll read down to 33. Follow along as I read aloud. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring, and left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third and down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished as is teaching. This is the Word of God. As I mentioned, the resurrection is not just some feature of the gospel, some sort of appendix or epilogue. It's not just some detail to say, oh yeah, by the way, Jesus rose from the grave as well. It's not just icing on the cake. It's not just some kind of tagged-on event at the end. The resurrection is the main Event As important as the cross is, I mentioned this a moment ago, as important as the cross is, as important as, as the death of Christ is in terms of the atonement of our sin, the early Christians did not see it wise to worship on Fridays. They worship on Sundays because it marks really the benediction, the consummation of all that Jesus had said. Now, at the end of each gospel, of the four gospels in the Bible, it, it ends with this main event, the, the capstone of Christian truth that Jesus indeed rose on the third day. Interesting little fact here. Have you noticed in the gospels, nowhere is the actual resurrection recorded? Have you ever thought about that? Nowhere do we hear uh, an account of Jesus sort of stirring and moving and, and how he got off out of those those cloths in his, with his body and 
I mean, we have the evidence of His resurrection all over. In fact, Paul mentioned over 500 people were eyewitnesses of Jesus after He rose from the grave. So it's, it's not like we can't build a case. I mean, this would stand up in any court in all of human history. But the story, or actually the account of Jesus being raised, in contrast to some other miracles, is not even in the Bible. Now, last week, like I said, I introduced you to these first century liberals, the Sadducees. These fellows, like theological liberals today, they cast doubt on the veracity, on the truth of Scripture. They cast doubt on Jesus' resurrection and the product, our own resurrection and afterlife. That's an old lie from Satan. It began at the very beginning. Did God really say is essentially what they're asking. Their descendants, modern-day liberals, attack inspiration. They attack the inerrancy of Scripture. They often argue something like this, and you'll see this if you watch the History Channel or if you hear much about religion or about Christianity. It goes something like this. Well, Jesus was just some sort of minor teacher that no one really knew about, and hundreds of years later there were people seeking to start a religion, and so they, they wrote these Gospels and made up all these miracles, including the resurrection. Well, if that's what happened, they did a terrible job because the main miracle, the most important miracle, they didn't even think to make up, quote-unquote, an account of it happening. So the liberals, the Bible critics, have to believe something that is more incredulous than the fact that 500 people have eyewitnessed. They have to come up with this idea that thousands of people who came up with Christianity forgot to put the most important miracle or account for the most important miracle. I think that's a bigger pill to swallow than just simply believe in the resurrection. Why is there no account of the moment of resurrection? Because no one saw it. They saw the evidence of it. They saw the living Jesus walking and talking and teaching. They simply recorded it the way they experienced it. They didn't have to make something up. They didn't have to fabricate anything. This was just truth. This is how they experienced it. It's what took place, and they wrote it down. Well, the Sadducees attacked the whole idea of the miraculous, including the idea of the resurrection. And by resurrection, again, this passage means not just Jesus' resurrection, but the result, the resurrection of, of all people, uh, people who will be unbeliever, unbelievers resurrected to a body fit for destruction and believers resurrected to a body fit for glory and bliss. They rejected any idea of afterlife. This kind of doubt, this liberalism had been around from the beginning, and it was always sort of has this intellectual allure. But the fact is, just as I demonstrated just now, all these things have an answer. Smart people have responded to the questions of liberals. And this really points us to that point one that I spoke of last week, what I tried to show you last week, and that is to beware of the leaven of liberalism. That was point number one. If you weren't here, you can write that down. The liberal foundation is a doubt. It's doubt of God's truth. It's doubt of His Word. It's attack on God. Really, it's the exaltation of man. Sitting in high judgment over God's Word as though man has the ability to judge God. And there is a, a sheen to it. There's an allure to it that it, somehow it's more intellectual than all these dummies who believe in Jesus and resurrections. But in the end, to doubt God, to doubt His ability, to doubt His Word, His promises, get you nowhere but death. So negatively, that was our first point last week, beware of the leaven of liberalism. I'm using Jesus' language. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Positively, number two is what we're going to consider today. Number two, hope in the reality 
of the resurrection. Appropriately today, we're going to study the second half of that passage. Jesus defends the truth of the resurrection, and again, He applies it not just to His resurrection, but the resurrection of all who will follow. Verse 29, as Jesus responds, it's sort of a, a summary verse of what He's going to say. It's almost like an outline of His little miniature sermon here. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then he shows him exactly what he means. How do they deny the power of God? He answers in verse 30. How do they deny the Word of God? He demonstrates in 31 and 32. By the way, this is a very traditional Hebrew way of teaching. It's sort of a loose, what they call chiasm. He says, you don't know Scriptures, you don't know the power of God, and then he reverses it. Here's how you don't know the power of God, and here's how you don't know the Scripture. And as we've noticed throughout chapter 22, Jesus is responding to these accusations and traps laid for him. But clearly, his intention is not just to answer those questions and prove them wrong, but also to teach his followers and even to teach us today. Now, what is he teaching us here today about hoping in the reality of the resurrection? How do we hope in the reality of the resurrection? One is we believe in the power of God. We believe in the power of God. Now, this first one is pretty interesting because Jesus responds to their challenge about marriage. In the Old Testament, just a little background here, in the Old Testament there were rules about widows. When a man would die and leave his widow, his brother, if he himself wasn't married, his brother would marry the widow. And I know it sounds sort of weird, we're sort of spoiled with options nowadays, and we sort of have a more romantic view of love and marriage. But back then in the ancient world, widows, even young widows, if they didn't get remarried, they were cast out to the street. It's not like they took all the stuff that her husband had. Back then, in most societies, the woman was cast out as a vagrant into the street, and she would have had to beg for food. She would have been out in the street as a homeless person. Moreover, all marriages back then were arranged, and of course, if this were to happen, there would be no arrangement for her to be married if her husband died. So this is leveret marriage, and this was the arrangement that God endorsed for widows. Leveret, by the way, doesn't re relate to the tribe of Levi or the Levites. It's actually a Western, it's from a Western word that means brother-in-law. God endorsed this principle to protect women, first of all, to keep poverty and indigence at bay among His people in Israel. It was to make sure there was not a bunch of fighting over money and, and women like there always is. And most importantly, it's something we learn about in the book of Ruth, it is to demonstrate that we, like an indigent widow, are poor, dead, and cast out, and we need what is called a kinsman redeemer. We need someone like us to come and redeem us. Mankind needs someone who can be perfect on our behalf and provide and adopt us, take us into His family. So God endorsed this law to do all these things, most importantly, to picture our need for Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. So, the Sadducees are going to this endorsement that God gives of leveret marriage. That's found in Deuteronomy 25, if you're writing notes, against Jesus, against anyone who would believe in a resurrection. They bring up this law, the, the leveret law, and they're going to say, now, let's, let me, let's bring up the law of God and prove from the law of God that, Jesus, you cannot believe in a resurrection. 
And so they come up with a story. I don't know how true this story is. They say it's true. Someone among us and all of her seven husbands died. At that point, I think I'd be asking more questions about this black widow, this lady who is... All her husbands seem to die. But they say it's true. And Jesus gives His answer there in verse 30. He says, essentially in 29, you don't know the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, as you read through the Bible, if you started at the very beginning, you would discover this is a new and interesting piece of information about heaven and what it's going to be like in eternity, about your resurrected eternal state. Now, I know some of you ladies, you read this and you breathe a huge sigh of relief. Whew! I don't have to be with that smelly ape for all of eternity. There are men too. Whew! I don't have to haul that old battle axe around heaven free at last. Now, that may be true for some of us here. But when I first came to, came to this passage, especially after marriage, frankly, I was disappointed. Because everything's better with my wife. She understands me. She lightens the day. She laughs at all my stupid jokes. She herself tells stupid jokes. It makes me laugh. We enjoy the same worldview, the same philosophy about child-rearing, about money, about food. We get along. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've been alone and thought to myself, I wish Becky were here. And so when I first came to this passage, frankly, I was disappointed. I really had to think. I, I couldn't imagine heaven being great without my wife. Well, there's a flow in the Bible a logical series of principles about marriage. I'm going to bring up two of them. I think it'll help us understand what's happening here and how it relates to the power of God and in the resurrected state after Christ is raised and we are raised with Him. First, if you uh, go all the way back, you don't have to turn there, but if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and you read about man before women, a woman is created and you read about out man, and God gives Adam this command to have dominion over the earth. And that day, Adam began to classify all the animals. Of course, there would have been uh, fewer animals there because of what we call microevolution. He classified those animals. And after classifying them, it's pretty clear that he needs support in this effort. He needs companionship, and he clearly needs the intimacy of a wife. If he's supposed to subdue and have dominion over the earth and fill the earth, he needs a partner. And from this, we can draw a principle to obey God, one of God's earliest commands, that is to subdue and fill and have dominion over the earth. We need, we men and women, we need partners, lifelong monogamous covenant marriages to spouses and I have to add this in the 21st century, of the opposite sex. That's what's pictured in the Garden of Eden. It was not good that Adam be alone, Adam man being alone. It's not a good thing, God says. In order for him to carry out my command, 
It is better for him to have a lifelong covenant partner. Now, that's the norm. That's not the absolute law. We know this because oftentimes in the Bible we see exceptions to that, and singles play a vital role in the kingdom. The Apostle Paul, not the least. But the norm in terms of work, in terms of life, in terms of children, in terms of carrying out this command, the norm is that we have this lifelong companion. The second principle we learn as we look at the Bible about marriage, the second principle we learn, early on there's some hints, but we learn explicitly in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is to be a picture, a parable of the relationship of Jesus with His people. That we, His people, are the bride, and He is the groom. That we, His people, are to receive from Him intimacy and joy and fellowship, fulfillment and support. He'll cherish us and nourish us, and we will exalt Him. Paul says, ultimately, that's the purpose of marriage, to picture this relationship, to be a living parable on earth of the gospel, of, of people coming to a relationship with Christ. Now, these principles help us today. For one thing, in our eternal state, living on the new earth with access to the new heaven and God, there's no need to fulfill that command to subdue and have dominion over the earth. That work is over. That work is complete. So we don't need that mutual support of, of marriage that marriage would provide. But so often it's, it's necessary on earth, it's, it's vital to our existence on earth, and we need it, and we can't imagine life, those of us who are married can't imagine life without our spouse. But in the eternity, in the future, that's not necessary. It's just simply not needed. In the future, we can stand before God and complete everything that He's commanded us to do on our own as individuals. By the way, in some circles, just a little asterisk here, in some circles, it's become popular to overemphasize communal or group conversion. Now, we, we can see this, that sometimes large groups of people are saved. But this is one place we can see, ultimately, the relationship in eternity is between an individual and God Himself. Each person on his own must have a relationship with God. Not one person, not even your spouse, can act as your proxy. Not the group you're in, not the marriage you're in. You stand before God all on your own. In our eternal existence in heaven, we have no need of a spouse to do what we are asked to do by God. And this is true emotionally, this is true physically, it's true in terms of our work efforts. To do what God requires of us in eternity, unlike in this earth, is not better together as God says in Genesis 2. We're fully equipped to do as a single individual before God in eternity. On top of that, the need of a gospel parable, that need is completed. It's fulfilled. It's over. Just like the preaching of the gospel will end. In eternity, we're not preaching to a bunch of lost people because all the lost people are somewhere else or we can't go. And there's no hope for them. So there's no need for the gospel to be preached. There's no need for a, a gospel parage, parable to be lived out in a marriage. That need is completed. That purpose for marriage has been fulfilled. So what Jesus is getting at here is that God has 
such amazing and thrilling power that in eternity, when He gives us our resurrected bodies, when He raises us up, just, just like He did Jesus, when He raises us up, He's going to furnish us with these resurrection bodies that are completely fulfilled in Him. All of our spiritual and emotional and intimate and physical, all of those needs will be fulfilled in eternity. You're not going to look across heaven and see your wife over there and go, man, she's looking really good today. I wish I could go stand by her. You'll be completely fulfilled. It's not that you won't know your loved ones. Of course you will. But you will be completely fulfilled doing and acting and living because all the purposes of marriage have been fulfilled at that point. God is going to so powerfully change us and so powerfully give us new bodies. And it, again, if you have a good marriage, if you have a healthy marriage, you understand this. I mean, the, the desire and the need for your spouse is, is powerful. It's palpable. You can't get away from it. It's, it's so important in your life. You can't imagine life without her or him. And God is going to so powerfully change us that we will no, ha no longer have those needs. God will bring all the fulfillment and all these things to our own lives there in the eternal, eternal state. I know we think of God's power, we think of miracles, or the power to change hearts, but Jesus is talking about the power of God to give us a resurrected body just like He gave Jesus. This real, powerful, fulfilled, eternal status. We'll be completely, completely and totally satisfied in Him and in the triune God. And again, if you have a good marriage, you realize how amazing this power must be to bring all the fulfillment because you have so much longing and so much love and you need your spouse. You see that power God is giving us in our resurrected bodies, again, just like Jesus received in His resurrection. We heard a little bit of the story of Jesus' resurrection. He's given a new, somewhat recognizable, I mean, they recognized Him, a, a reconstituted body. It was a, a human body, but it was a body of glory. It was a body that could do amazing things. It was a body that was fit for eternity and eternal glory. And when we think of His resurrection, we can glory in our own that one day we will have that fulfilled, completely satisfied, content reality for eternity. Well, that's one massive reason we as Christians love to celebrate the resurrection because we see in the resurrection not just Christ's resurrection, but that He was, as Paul says, a firstfruits. He was a type. He was a picture of what we too will, will have. We'll have this resurrected body and it will be absolute, complete contentment and satisfaction. We won't become angels. Jesus didn't say we become angels, but we come in terms of marriage, in terms of worshiping God, we become like angels in that we are totally satisfied simply in worshiping God on our own. The Apostle Paul, thinking about this, had a moment at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, this chapter about the resurrection. I preached from that chapter several times on Resurrection Sunday. But as Paul goes through this, he gets to the end, he just erupts in praise about this body that is fully complete and fully satisfied and fully content. He says this in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God meaning your body cannot survive. If you just took your body now, it cannot survive the kingdom of God. Your spirit has inherited the kingdom of God, but your flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep, 
But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised and perishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was meditating on the truth of the resurrection that he too, like Christ, will inherit a body of glory. And he thinks about that victory and cherishes it and revels in it and thinks about it and encourages him and encourages us. Because of Christ's resurrection, we too will receive our own resurrection. That amazing power of the resurrection will come to us. It will exist in us in that perfect, joyous, content status for all of eternity. Wonderful truth. Well, how else do we hope in the reality of the resurrection? That is to do the opposite of the Sadducees here, and that is to believe in the, uh, believe in the promises of God. That's another part of this. We believe in the power of God. We also believe in the promises of God. Jesus said to the Sadducees, you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. He's demonstrated how they don't know the power of God. Now, where do they miss the truth of Scripture? Jesus took them to stories from the first book of the Bible and then the first couple verses, or first early verses in the second book of the Bible. He quotes to them from about Old Testament or Genesis characters in Exodus Chapter 3, verse 6, that's the cross-reference there. Jesus says, his response again, Resurrection, they're not even married, they're given a marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now, what Jesus is doing here is making a linguistic argument. I want you to see this here. He's making an argument based upon Hebrew grammar. I do want to pause here and say something. Every once in a while, someone says to me, usually it's another pastor, but someone says to me, uh, Preacher, you know, no one cares about the Greek and the Hebrew and the linguistics and the grammar. If you do that, I've been told this by other pastors, if you do that, you're just, all you're doing is just flaunting your knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. It's just, it's just pride that a pastor would talk about the grammar or linguistics or the Hebrew and Greek. Just a way of showing off. Just give application and move on. Well, first of all, that is patently wrong. I have people all the time ask me about the grammar and linguistics and the language and what's going on here. You're smart people. I mean, I would think that more than half of our congregation knows more, at least has a cursory knowledge of another language. And you understand the ins and outs, the exigencies of, of interpretation and language, and, and you want to know. People ask me all the time about the language. What's going on? They know that the Bible wasn't written in English. And perhaps they even know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New in, in Greek. And, and they know that I go to seminary to, to learn these things and to understand interpretation. And so I get questions all the time. So it's wrong to say people don't care because maybe the person saying it doesn't care, but a lot of people actually do care. And they want to know. 
what the Bible says in the original context. They, they want to know. Another reason is that Jesus himself does linguistics. His very argument here is based on an assumed verb in the Hebrew. There's a little rule, and I'll tell you about in a minute. It's a, an assumed verb. Another argument that he gives later on, just a few verses later, it's, about, it's, it's, it's anchored on a tense of a verb. All that to say, be kind to others. If you don't like Greek, if you don't like Hebrew, you don't want to know about that stuff, be kind to others. There's a lot of people that want to do it. And maybe show a little interest because Jesus himself gives us linguistic or grammar arguments from time to time. Well, this is a time that he does. Jesus hinges his argument here on a presumed verb. It's interesting that Jesus does not go to, for instance, David's words... David, talking about his, his child who had perished, talks about how that child is now in the arms of God, is safely in the arms of God. Nor did he take him to the story of, of Saul and Samuel. You remember the prophet Samuel appeared in his resurrected form and spoke to Saul. Nor did Jesus take him to the evidence in his own life, the, the, the actual empirical evidence of what had happened in his ministry. Jesus raised up Jairus' daughter. He raised up the son of the widow of Nain. He raised up, of course, Lazarus. He could have brought them in and said, were you guys dead? Yes, we were dead. I raised them up. So how can there be no other way? He didn't do that. He could have done that, but he didn't do it. Instead, Jesus goes back to the Torah, the Pentateuch, which, if you remember from last week, that is the only part of the Bible the Sadducees recognized. He quoted a passage that these guys would have been very familiar with there in the early parts of Exodus. When Moses meets with God with the burning bush, God tells Moses to remove his sandals because they're, he's standing on holy ground. And what does God say in Exodus 3, 6? I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, in the Hebrew, it literally says... I, God of your father, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. And every elementary Hebrew student knows that this is a perfect example where the rules of Hebrew grammar tell you you are to supply the present tense being verb. I am. Moreover, we know this is true because even Jesus supplies that present tense being verb, I am. We can read it in the Greek right here in Matthew. Not I was, or I will be, or one time a long time ago. No, present tense, I am. Currently, at this moment, I am being worshipped by your father, by Abraham, by Isaac, and by Jacob. And there's more. If you read the context there, God had just established in Exodus 2 His eternal covenant with these men. God talked about this covenant that He had made. And it's not a covenant that died when those men died. That covenant lived on. He calls it an everlasting covenant. So Jesus, using the Scriptures that they understood and they affirmed, Jesus makes this open and shut case. These men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, clearly are alive living eternally in resurrected status in heaven, worshiping God right now 
because God had raised them up after death and all that because He had made this eternal, everlasting covenant with Him. And so Jesus adds, God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And I just imagine up there on that Temple Mount, it says everyone's astonished. I imagine when Jesus said that, there was a lot of ooh, 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 rumbles. Wow, He put them in their place. Well, what are we to do with this truth? The first thing, obviously, is to believe in the resurrection, believe and take this to heart. Jesus died and rose again. If you believe in Him, you too will rise again, not for death and punishment, but you will rise again with an eternal, powerful body that is able to perfectly worship Him, free from all sin and scars and pain. Believe that what Jesus did on the cross was true, that God's raising Christ up from the dead was the affirmation that all that Jesus said was true, that He was indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And believe that Jesus rose up as a foretaste of a resurrected status for all of us who believe. So my encouragement to you, if you have not believed in Christ, the first and foremost application is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Believe that He died rose and ascended to the Father. For believers, the resurrection reality fills us with hope. And that was my second point today. It fills us with hope. We look to that day when our pain goes away, when our tears are wiped away. Interestingly, it says our tears are wiped away. It doesn't say there are no tears in heaven, but it seems like there is a moment where there is this understanding of lost loved ones or, or, or people who have maybe parted and now spend their eternity in hell. And there's this idea that there is going to be some tears, but those tears will be wiped away. We'll understand instantly the judgment of God, the righteousness of God, the goodness of God. We'll, we'll see it all at once in our exalted and eternal resurrected state. All our needs, all of our desires to will be totally fulfilled to our blissful contentment for all of eternity as we follow Jesus in His resurrection. So take heart. So let me leave us with the words of Paul to the church at Corinth, and then I'm going to pray, and then we have some instructions for uh, our brunch here. Paul, I mentioned 1 Corinthians 15. It's the longest section in the New Testament about the resurrection. He concludes that whole chapter by saying this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, this life is hard. This life is tough. It brings all kinds of challenges. And Lord, you give us all kinds of graces. You give us friends and family. You give us spouses. You give us loved ones. You give us churches who love us and support us and make the burden light. But nevertheless, Lord, we face hardship and difficulty. We face the sins in our own hearts. And Lord, as we gaze upon the resurrected Christ and contemplate even our own resurrection, Lord, may we be steadfast and be immovable. And may we abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that it's not in vain. And Lord, for those who don't know you, Give them the knowledge and desire and compel them to have faith in Christ and to follow Him in repentance. We ask this in the name of Jesus.